Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It this Wednesday, 4th of November. Oh, sorry, this Wednesday, 18th of November. I'm living in the past, Laura. Shake me up. Uh, tonight, I'm joined by Laura Summers. Hello, hello. Hey, and Dan Morganti. Hello. G'day. And uh, tonight, we are going to be exploring email trends over the year with Nicola Nye from Fastmail. We're also going to connect with two people who have been supporting people on the autism spectrum with fun technology clubs. But before we get there, the news this evening, I think we need to kick off with the fact that the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter fronted the US Senate again, what was sort of yesterday, I guess, for Australian time, but kind of today for US time. And uh, they've been asked to do that regularly. This is the ongoing conversations around the alleged anti-conservative bias on these platforms. I think we could probably agree that there's bias of many kinds. Um, anti-conservative, I'm not so sure. Laura, what's your what's your take on what we heard from these two CEOs this time around? Um, well, I don't think they've told us anything new per se. Um, they've really just said the same thing, which is that moderating content is hard and they're trying to have a robust process. Um, there was certainly some additional Republican outrage because we've seen Twitter this time around actually adding some disinformation tags, especially to specific Trump tweets. Um, but there's there's a beautiful quote um, from this piece, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read it out, um, which is from one of the um, Democratic senators saying, we live in a dangerous world. There are issues of national security, the worst pandemic public health crisis in modern times in America. And we're being challenged as to whether there's going to be a peaceful transition of power in America's presidency, said Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. At that moment in time, we decided none of those topics was important and that what was important was to determine whether or not social media was discriminating against Republicans. And I, I just really think that nails it. Like that for me is just like everything you need to know in a nutshell. Like it, we, we're not talking about people being told not to wash their hands due to COVID. We're not talking about whether or not you know, the standing president will leave the White House peacefully or like whether there's any impact of these kinds of, um, you know, network effects, ripple effects through the social media networks. We're talking about whether Republicans are getting a raw deal on Twitter. And yeah, I think I think maybe occasionally there is some bias against them, but I just don't think it's the primary form of harm. And I don't think it's the one that the Senate needs to be focusing on right now. Yeah, that's a really good wrap. Uh, the PBS NewsHour was very worth watching on this issue. They did uh, show the two CEOs going through their laundry lists of actions that they'd taken, but they all seemed pretty unsubstantial. It's just like, oh, well, we're doing this better and we have a team now that looks at this, you know, and it's, I've noticed that all of the the uh, written reporting on this actually hasn't gone through those very much because they just do seem a little trite. Yeah, well, they're not really telling us how are they being more robust or more consistent in their application of their policies. And that's always been the left's complaint is that these policies get applied very lumpily, shall we say, and usually unfairly. Yeah. Hey, Dan, you're usually our go-to man on the games front, well, one of them. Um, 
what's been happening in that space recently? So the Victorian government has announced a massive cash injection to all screen uh, endeavours in Victoria. Uh, So there's been a pledge of $33.8 million to the Victorian Screen Industries programs, uh, which uh, for the first time includes uh, video games and online uh, games as well. Um, So there's $19.2 million will be allocated to attract international and interstate screen projects to Victoria. Um, the, the incentive will target physical uh, productions, visual effects, animation, post-production, and for the first time, like I mentioned, digital games projects. Uh, $4.7 million will support uh, the development and production of local content across film, television, online, and games. Uh, $8.6 million has been secured to, con- to continue Film Victoria's successful local production investment and industry uh, and skills development programs on top of Film Victoria's ongoing operational funding. So uh, it's a, it's great news for anyone in uh, uh, the creative industries if you're involved with the screen. Um, and it's great to see that uh, the Victorian government's finally realised that there's an untapped there's untapped potential for um, investment in video games in Victoria and Australia as well. Yeah, that's great to hear. Mm. Thanks, Dan. Laura, there's a new Twitter feature. Tell us all about it. Oh, there is. So for those of you who are social media users and are familiar with TikTok and Snapchat and this sort of stories format where you create content and it's live for a fixed time, usually about 24 hours, and then it disappears forever, Twitter has decided to release a similar feature um, called Fleets. So instead of tweets, which exist forever, yes, Vanessa's giggling at me. We all think this is just the silliest name. (laughs) I guess now we're all going to be fleeting. Uh, I don't even know if I can take that seriously. Um, It's just making me think of the face that could launch a thousand ships. Like For some reason, it's making me think of an an armada, which I'm having trouble saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Off you go, but you're now an armada of ships. Yes, yeah. I, I totally feel you. Um, look, I I have some opinions about this, but I want to open up the mic first and say, does anyone else like have any vibe? Like, what do you think? Is this like the most important feature for Twitter to have launched in this period of 2020? Uh, well, I'm not much of a Twitter user, so they can really do what they want and it doesn't really worry me, just as long as they're not, you know, uh, spreading misinformation and hate, which, oops, they uh, they're kind of in uh, in the business of as well. But um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I don't use Twitter, so it doesn't really affect me. Look, there's a, a PR school of thought that says that people should routinely be deleting all of their old tweets anyway, so that they're not brought up out of context years later when when you've forgotten about them. Um, this moves it to a much more present type of thing. I think for a platform that is very attractive to people um, posting with political motivation, it's a, you know, it's not a great idea. I mean, things will be captured anyway. It, it seems to yeah. be a little bit like, well, are you going to stand by what you say? Or it's it's not. I don't think a lot of it is as, as ephemeral as video-based content. But maybe yeah. that's just because I'm I'm quite used to things, you know, the status quo. Uh, I'll I'll be interested to see what people do with it. Yeah, well, to your point, like they sort of like their their whole selling point is that fleets relieve the pressure of posting and 
my vibe is like, where's the pressure, right? Like people post the most absurd stuff and they don't seem to hold back. Um, no one's holding a gun to their head to post either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've already, I follow a lot of people who are in the um, digital inclusion and diversity space as well as the tech abuse space. And then just totally over this feature. Um, so one Twitter user who's called Rabbit, um, our, I won't even go into their tweet handle because it's too hard. They said, you can fleet a tweet with a comment to your followers and the author of the tweet doesn't get notified and it automatically d disappears. So it's literally designed to allow people to OOB flag tweets to their armies for beginning and harassment. So it, basically like the concern is that we haven't learned anything from the sort of trolling, piling on kind of behavior that they've already struggled to control another baking in a feature which is has less visibility and is going to be um, less easy for people being trolled or being, you know, like responded to to manage or to respond to because it'll be faster and more and more fleeting. Ha <laughs> 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 But yeah, no, look, that's that's kind of my take. Like why why can't they spend some time building out their um, harassment features and making that a little bit more robust and um, thinking that stuff through a bit more thoroughly? Um, I just yeah, I, I really worry that this is just going to be, um, you know, lighting the torch to additional harassment. I think, too, it doubles down on the full-time Twitter, you know, you're tied to this because you'll miss things and you're in the in crowd or you're not, you know. If you have to spend a certain volume of time on there to be in touch with everything and they're baking in that um, that addiction type of quality Mm, it's a, it's and it's probably part of their strategy. Hey, like they they probably want to really up the engagement in quotes to see mm. people like spending more time on the platform. Mm. Um, oh, those duration stats won't raise themselves, Laura. No, right. <laughs> I was gonna say, should we do a little teaser? There's a segment coming in the next show, but I I just wanted to flag if you're a privacy nerd like me, or if you're a Mac like absolute tragic also like me you might be seeing that there's this new um apple os called big sur that was just released um and we'll just wanted to flag that there's some changes to this operating system that are a little bit concerning from a privacy and data protection point of view um and that is really a pretty big departure from apple's approach to this sort of stuff in the past so I probably won't see anything more, so that'll just whet everybody's appetite. But yeah, should be a really interesting chat, and I recommend you listen in this time next Wednesday if you're interested in Big Sur. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. So now we're going to pop into our first uh, wonderful interview. Fastmail was founded in 1999, and it's headquartered in Melbourne. Fastmail offers paid email accounts, in contrast to the large platforms like Gmail, which rely on advertising to be funded. And it's available in dozens of languages around the world. Nicola Nye, who's joining us tonight, is Fastmail's chief of staff. Her professional background spans the full range of technical experience, as she's been a programmer, project manager, technical writer, technical lead, and an open source community manager. Some of our listeners tonight will know her from LinuxConf. Also, I'll flag that she's joining me in a study group which is covering FastAI's Practical Ethics, which is a course we're starting tomorrow night. So she'll, we'll be hanging out again tomorrow, Nicola. Tonight, 
we asked her to reflect on the good, bad, and ugly of email in 2020. Welcome, Nicola. Thank you, everybody. Lovely to be here. It's amazing. So lovely to have you. It's um, pretty exciting times, gotta tell you. Isn't it just? So let's let's kick off. Like email, it's normally such a boring topic. Like why should we even be talking about it? Most people don't think, you know, high tech or, you know, cool future and think about email, but it's still such a base, the base bone, sorry, backbone of everything we do in technology. So yeah, like, do you want to kick us off by like talking about the importance of email? I think uh, email is something that people often take for granted. It's a bit like a utility. You know, you uh, in modern times, you expect that, you know, your house is going to have power and and telephone. Well, maybe not these days, but, you know, mobile phone and, you know, gas and water. But we also think, you know, central to our online lives, you can't imagine anyone not having an email address. Uh, and and that when you take things for granted, um, you get a bit complacent with it, I think. Um, and so people kind of expect that you'll have at least one email address. After all, they're free. Uh, it's the gateway to everything you do. You know, anytime you sign up to a service these days, whether it's something mission critical like your banking, or you just want to go buy something from from somewhere online. You know, with uh, those of us who've been in lockdown in Melbourne, you know, we're very familiar with suddenly uh, we want to order everything online. Oh, way too true. <laughs> and you've got to hand over your email address every single time. You know, to create an account. So suddenly your email address is home to all this information and some of it you'd be horrified at it if it ever got out because you know if someone knows your email address they can uh, reset the password to your bank account uh, you know they can they can get in and do all this sort of bad stuff with the with the contents of your email um, and so I think being complacent about who has your email and, and the care you take with it and the kind of information that goes into it and how you manage access to that uh, is really important and uh, digital literacy hasn't really caught up with it. I think a lot of people, um, probably myself included to an extent, I'll dob myself in, think like, oh, well, I've already been with, you know, someone like Gmail or Yahoo for years, so why change it now? Like, I've already done the damage. Um, and I'm curious, what would your response be about that? Uh, I, I would say, that, you know, there's no damage that, that can't be undone. It's a little bit like, <laughs> I've been smoking for years. Why should I stop now? <laughs> <laughs> like, you're never going to go back to being, you know, completely smoke-free, but, you know, every cigarette you don't smoke is, you know, doing you, doing you good. Um, so, you know, getting your email into somewhere that is um, going to be more supportive of you and your life goals uh, and your values and your uh, cares about ethics and privacy is, is so important. And yes, you know, um, another service might have mined your data for information for so many years, but if you get it out of there, then they can't do it anymore. So they only have, you know, that historical knowledge, which hopefully is getting deleted hopefully, uh, but at least you're not, you know, you're not perpetuating this. So Nicola, we hear from territories like the EU where they've brought in the general data protection regulations and there's a lot more rules on companies and how they have to keep their information, including their email address about you, more up to date and be quite responsive in terms of um, getting you off lists or being very um, consciously including you on lists if they're doing that sort of thing. We don't have those sort of protections here. What sort of protections do people have around their emails and uh, what would you like to see in that space? 
oh my goodness, what a can of worms. <laughs> so the, uh, the Australian Attorney General's Office has just opened up uh, a review of the Privacy Act submissions due by the end of the month. Uh, so a lot of uh, you know, activist groups are trying to prepare a submission. A month is not a very long time to do this. Uh, and obviously, you know, looking at the questions they're asking, they're clearly looking at legislation um, that's come out of the EU to see should we be doing something similar to that here, uh, to which, you know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say yes, because it's show a, your I, hand, be bold. It's, it's a great it's a great starting point. You know, is the GDPR perfect? No. Is it a whole lot better than what we've got at the moment? Yes. Um, so, you know, like it's a whole bunch of businesses suddenly uh, went offline the moment before GDPR came into effect because their business model was based on behaving really badly and they knew it would not stand up to scrutiny under the new laws and they would get sued, so they just shut down. Um, this was really eye-opening, that the sheer volume of companies who suddenly discovered that they were behaving so badly that they couldn't continue to operate. So I think, you know, that's a really great, great place to start, great place to look. Uh, I'd love to see more happen. Um, but, you know, let's, let's, let's walk before we can run. <laughs> yeah, and I think as a consumer, it was very eye-opening to suddenly get all these emails from people who did have your address within that region. And you're thinking, where did they even get that? When did they get that? How am yeah. I on their on their list? And now they're verifying that I, I still want to be there. And you just thought, this is fantastic. This is a great idea. I mean, unfortunately, it produced the kind of behaviour that we see, you know, click to accept these terms and conditions. <laughs> and people just do it blindly because they're like, I'm not reading 20 pages of it. So, you know, when you get yet another, you know, hi, we're updating our privacy policy announcement because of GDPR, people are like, oh, my goodness, you know, I'll just send this delete delete straight to trash. Uh, and but, but people have this problem, you know, when you, when you think about spam coming into your inbox, um, people use the term spam to, to describe... Uh, not just, you know, buy my fake pharmaceutical product um, or you have won a million dollars in an unlikely lottery that you never entered or you're the recipient of a Nigerian prince's endowment. Um, <laughs> but they also use it to describe, I've got uh, mail from some sort of subscription company um, and now they're emailing me and I don't really want to receive it anymore, but I don't know how to subscribe or I can't be bothered unsubscribing. So it's something that they signed up for but they no longer want and they still, they, you know, people still turn that as spam. Um, and we get heaps of people all the time saying, oh, I missed out on this really important notification. And that's because, you know, you've, the, the user has, we can see the user has previously marked mail from this service previously as spam. Um, and so, you know, when, when sort of 80% of the communication out of a company is kind of people's stuff people don't really want and then 10% of stuff that they do want, it causes this, this really brief problem in your in your mailbox mm. people don't know how to manage it and the tools at the client end are not sufficient and I'd love to see them regulated at the server side yeah I have a rule of thumb when I'm trying to unsubscribe from a list that I haven't been reading which is you know two strikes you're out like if I try and unsubscribe once and um you you don't like actually take me off my off the list I'll try one more time, and if it still continues to send me stuff I don't want, then I start hitting the spam button and try and get your your server, your sender um, marked as spam, which is kind of mean, but I also feel like it's verified. If I can't unsubscribe, it's on you. Um, 
So we should talk about specifically 2020 and what's been different in email this year and like what you've been seeing um, as a host of an email um, service and, you know, just, just broadly, like what is, what's, what's email changing and, and doing due to the pandemic, due to people working at home, due to people like getting even more deeply embedded in their technical tools than ever before? So obviously as an email company, we're always trying to find ways to help our users uh, screen out the mail that they don't want. And so I did a whole bunch of research into scams and spam, and I was a little bit horrified because uh, it's big business. So 2020, which isn't yet finished, um, $132 million has been reported as lost to scams. And like 2020 isn't even over yet. So $132 million. You can see why the bad guys like, are doing this. It's huge business. Uh, and that's, so that's um, by the time we end, end up at the end of this year, it's going to be much more than last year. Um, so the kind of scams where people lose money are investment scams and dating and romance scams. So that's someone who lives in a foreign country and, you know, they, they have this sort of long con going on and please send me money so I can get away from my abusive spouse and I will fly to meet you. And, you know, I've heard from the police of all these lost souls standing, waiting forever at the arrivals for their partner who never turns up uh, because it's a scam. Uh, and, you know, and there's all the other kind of scams as well, you know, online shopping and, you know, advertising, selling products that don't exist. Um, but they're, they're small bickies compared to investment scams and dating and romance. So then if you look at the, um, the prevalence of these over time, for this year, no, let's start with last year. Last year, the number of reports of scams taking place was decreasing over the course of the year. You know, people are getting smarter, tools are getting better, all is great, hit 2020 curve goes right back up again um, and you'll there's, there's a huge spike uh, for Australia um, kind of in the first half of the year where we were entering the, the lockdown um, and the pandemic was doing things and everybody was living at home and so I imagine speculating but dating and romance scams were on the increase because everybody's stuck at home feeling very lonely and turning to the internet for places to make connection and then the investment scams were also on the rise because again people businesses suddenly had to go remote. Suddenly people were away from the usual processes. So it didn't seem too unusual to get a, an email from your boss, not through his email account, through, through some, you know, Hotmail or Gmail account, free email account to say, hi, I'm not at my desk right now. Can you authorise changing the bank, bank account details for such and such to this other one over here? And people a bit stressed, don't think to verify it, can't just turn around, go around the corner and talk to said boss to say, hi, where are you? So you can't verify it, things were being changed and money's being lost. Now, if I sit there and think 132 million, odds are pretty good that that number is actually underreported because like a whole bunch of people would be ashamed, embarrassed, and particularly in the form of dating and in dating kind of scams, they, they probably still believe it's real. Mm. They still believe that person is coming. Oh, wow. You, you've told us um, so many micro stories of, of tragedy and woe woven into that. That's, and it's so, it's so easy to imagine. I think that when, when people, when the average person um, thinks about email scams, they think, oh, I'd have to be stupid if I let that happen to me. And so, you know, and if they accidentally do something, they probably feel, you know, a bit ashamed. 
And so much corporate training is around, you know, the user learning to recognise scams and what have you. But there's this fantastic body of work that sort of shows that, gosh, we're all vulnerable sometimes. You know, so, so what are email companies thinking about in terms of how you can help from your side of things? How do you, how do you look at it all? Oh, it's like it's so hard um, because it's, a, it's an arms race against the people committing these kinds of frauds. So uh, much like anything out there on the internet, you know, if you, the, 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 the anti-scam uh, behaviour that we used to have in place was fine 10 years ago and then they upped their game, you know, no longer can you search for variants of Viagra <laughs> uh, to block them. Now, you know, natural language processing is producing, you know, mass market emails that, you know, people can blast out and it takes one... One person to blast an email and it can reach millions. If they pick the right platform, they can reach millions. Um, and it only needs, you know, maybe 10% of people to go ahead and click on it. Uh, so it's it's finds it's it's a very easy way for them to target us. And you know, while we increase our protections, they can increase their attacks. And there's many more of them with a lot more time on their hands because people don't like to pay for email. Yeah. You know, for 20 years we were told that email was free. And it turns out that actually running an email service where, you know, you're continually upping your game against the bad guys is, you know, it's very time consuming and, and it's hard because they're getting more and more like real email. And people get very cross when you put their real email in the spam folder. So we err on the side of delivering mail to your inbox um, and knowing that a bit more spam will get through because we'd hate for you to miss that important email rather than send everything into the spam folder and then you miss it and then everybody everybody is sad. Yeah, I think the penny droppings for um, the penny is dropping for a lot of users of free email services as you know the longer they're using them, the the closer they get to those uh, space guidelines. You know, Yahoo just this year has been sending out a lot of notices to people saying that they're going to have to radically reduce their inbox sizes and, you know, Gmail's done that for a long time. I wonder, should I take any comfort from the fact that I, when I look at my spam folder, there's a lot of things saying, hey, Plasmo, want to see sexy ladies for good times? And the fact that, you know, can I take any comfort from the fact that spammers are kind of misidentifying my interests in the world? Or does that not mean anything significant? Uh uh, I think it just means that they are sending all things to all people. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, the people who had lost the most money to scams were slightly predominantly men over women. And I don't know whether this is because they're the ones more likely to be on the internet at all hours of the day because they're less likely to have home duties, perhaps, or whether it's because they're lonelier or whether they're because they're more likely to spend the money in a way that maybe women are a bit more financially conservative um, or maybe, you know, all this kind of thing. But, you know, it would explain why potentially, you know, obviously the, the, the dating scams that you're seeing in your spam folder are, you know, targeting a particular demographic. So maybe you've hit on something, you and the, and the scammers have identified. I, I wonder. I mean, I love looking through that spam folder before I mass delete just to get a sense <laughs> of what is out there. And it's like, oh, okay, it's all casinos and dating and lots of attractive Russian ladies. And yeah, it's, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty full on. But uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. 
Um, I have been targeted much more specifically. I had I I had um I knew that I had a password that got leaked in one of those big like table dumps. Um, I think two years ago now, and someone tied it back to my email. So I had one of those like phishing black emails that was like, "Hey, Starscope, I know that your password is this for these services." Um, and it did like give me pause, and I was like, "Oh shit, is this real?" Wait, no, it's not. I, I use a password manager now, and I'm much more on top of my stuff than I was, you know, back then. Um, but yeah, it's I, I have a lot of empathy for people who get fooled by these things because even people who work in tech and do this stuff day in day out, you know, our sniff test fails us sometimes, and we start to think that there's like, you know, more sort of cleverness or intention behind it than there is, or like they've done, they, they've found out more things. Um, oh gosh, I just realized that we're, we're nearly out of time and we have so many more fun things to talk to. Perhaps, because we, we're, we're pretty much out of time, Nicola, maybe do you want to share like your one last nugget about um, what's important for our listeners to think about when they think about email? Uh, I, would, I would urge you, if you want to be critical about stuff coming into your inbox so you don't get caught by scammers and spam, um, have a look at who's sending it. And that's not just who your client says is your email client says is sending it, but have a look um, a little bit further and just check that uh, you know if you if you look into um, most mail clients will show you who really sent it, not who claims to send it. Check that that's real, but mostly I'd say you know pick your pick your email server and your host with care because you know it's got your entire life in there. Words to live by. Um, well, thank you, Nicola, so much for coming on to the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. The Lab is a growing network of technology clubs for children and young people who identify as being on the autism spectrum and who enjoy working with computers. We last heard about the lab on Byte in 2012. I can't believe it's been so long. So tonight, long overdue, we are joined by Stefan Schutt, who's one of the lab co-founders, and Alan Morgan, who's the national coordinator, to catch up on what they've been up to. Welcome, Stefan and Alan. Hi. How are you going? Hi. Well, how are you? We're good. Enjoying the warm weather at the moment. Excellent. Uh, Alan, loving the the T-shirt. We've got a bit of... uh, (laughs) Biden-Harris action going on there, very timely. I thought it was going to be radio. I didn't know I was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) Only for the select few. That's a a little value add. Um, So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Look, we've had reports come out from the Disability Royal Commission not so long ago, highlighting some of the challenges and adversity that Australians with disability face in the education system. Um, Stefan, you in particular have dedicated a lot of your research into this space. Tell me a bit about the the lab's purpose and how that came out of of what you've been looking into. So, yeah, so I guess um, it started a decade ago now. So today's the, well, this year's the 10th anniversary of the lab. Um, I co-founded it with a software developer called Dale Linegan. And really, we we did a couple of research projects in regional Victoria that looked at um, how technology can positively impact the lives of young people. Um, And one thing that we found, and we weren't expecting to find this, and we hadn't worked with people with autism before, but that young people with autism were really isolated. Um, But when they got together, 
in groups and working on stuff that interested them that had a, where they had a common interest that seemed to make a huge difference um, and a lot of the guys that we were working with are really into technology in a different way uh, different ways depending on their interests and so we kind of uh, picked up on that um, and created a space where people could get together after school and where their parents could also meet and exchange information because often the parents are really isolated as well um, and with people with autism, it's it's kind of um, uh, the the big issues around the kind of social aspects of life. Um, they never get really get a chance to practice making friends, to interact socially, to negotiate um, relationships with other people. Um, and so, I guess we were providing a way for that to happen. Um, people do say that people with autism graduate from the classroom into the bedroom. Uh, and that has been borne out in the Australian Bureau st statistics um, kind of findings over the last you know, X years, um, where there are there are huge numbers of people on the autism spectrum who are not um, in work at all, and therefore don't have the chance to develop the skills to get into work. Um, I'm really curious about the work you're doing because it it might seem like now in 2020 that sort of code labs and coding for kids is like this sort of common thing and there's a whole bunch of new companies that have popped up in this space tackling this kind of work. But I imagine that there's sort of some specific challenges and specific pointy edges to thinking about approaching coding curriculum with a specific demographic you're working with. Um, so I'm yeah. curious, like, how do you think about um, making this stuff accessible to people who are neuro, neuro, um, and ne neurologically different, I suppose, to, differently abled? I, 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 mean, I don't know if you want to answer that, Alan, but, but I'll, I'll start. Um, I guess the first thing is, is that it's not primarily a coding club. It's really a social environment and the technology is a point of common interest where people can um, get to know each other and make friends. And then the technology skills that come with it with the mentors who are working at the labs um, are kind of like icing on the cake if people want to develop those skills in an area that they're in interested in. So there's not the same kind of pressure to have to you know, um, do particular kinds of activities. It's all based on the interests of the young people. Uh, but that's probably a really important point. Um, mm. And I mean, it, sorry, go on, Alan. Sorry. Uh, yeah, we say that the, the lab is a participant-led and unstructured activity. That doesn't mean that there isn't a structure to sessions, but lab sessions are deliberately as unlike school as we can make them. Um, it is a participant-led activity in that it's centred around the participants' interests, what they're interested in when they do them in their own time, finding their own space. Um, it's very much centered around the experience of the participants. And in that way, it's, you know, we make it very clear uh, that it's not strictly an educational experience, it's a social experience. And there's certainly a lot of learning that goes on in lab sessions. There's social sort of uh, social rules, learning friendship rules, uh, technology, and then really, you know, some of the soft skills around turn taking and learning to, to read cues, read physical cues, social cues, things like that. 
Alan, I wonder if I can ask you, you've just briefly mentioned some of the rules that you use. Um, often people who are neurologically diverse do find some safe spaces for themselves online, but we all know that finding safe spaces online can be a challenge in and of itself and, and you know, those spaces tend to change a lot. In what, mm. in what ways do you curate your environments to, to create safe spaces? Um, well, I think that, that participant-led space is really important. Um, since COVID's social distancing restrictions, we haven't been able to run, run labs. There are currently 30, over 30 labs around the country and only two are running and they're in Queensland. But we have um, moved everything online and we're running about 10 sessions a week online. And that's proved to be really popular. Um, a lot of kids do feel very comfortable in the online space. It's not for everyone, but um, it has been really successful and it's, it's sort of provided a real um, a sort of uh, an opportunity for young people to stay connected with their friends, their lab friends, and with the mentors. And, you know, talking about um, a learning lab being a learning experience, it's really important to recognise that it's a really positive experience for mentors as well. We recruit mentors from computer science, games development courses, uh, the tech industry, and uh, we're always on the lookout for new mentors. And it's a really, um, it's a really valuable experience for young people who want to be involved in mentoring at the lab, um, learning really strong sort of interpersonal skills, leadership skills, and um, being exposed to a really diverse section of the community is really important. Also, they get paid. That's a yeah, really it's a paid position. And they're, yeah. paid, they're paid pretty well because it is professional mentoring role. There's a fair degree of responsibility involved and we expect a high level of engagement from the mentors with the participants. Uh, the mentors are really the crux of the lab. They provide a really positive and engaging experience for young people who are attending sessions. Um, you know, mentors need to have a strong familiarity with the games that the participants want to play, but they also need to have a very strong sort of capacity for fun. Yeah, um, and, and, you know, and also the, it's the fun um, experience. The, 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 uh, the mentors are often role models to the, to the participants in the lab and they, they have to know their stuff because the guys who turn up, you know, guys and girls who turn up, they're, they're onto it and they Very know that someone doesn't know their stuff. You know, they, they have to be good at what they do. Gee, it sounds very like challenging a challenging role. But it very sounds rewarding. like a, a mental gym for the mentors. There, a good way to, to flex, you know, those muscles. Absolutely. Yeah, well, there'll, there'll, there'll be challenge. training experience. Yeah, any training experience is as, as challenging and rewarding for the, the trainers, the mentors, as it is for the participants. That's, that's generally the case. So what sort of role can family and friends play when they know someone who's participating in lab activities? I think one of the things is to take an interest in what their child is doing. Not to, and often what's happened in the past, that parents assume a certain thing about computers. So if someone's on, on you know, doing, playing a game uh, online or they're looking at a screen, there's, there can be an assumption that they're wasting their time or they're not being productive, or they're just engaged in entertainment. But there could be all kinds of stuff going on that um, no one but the person who's actually involved in the activity can, can see. Um, we've had, you know, young people building levels in games um, and learning these incredible skills and doing amazing stuff just 
you know, in, uh, the, the only people who know what they're doing is them, basically. And so um, taking that interest really helps, I think. Mm. I mean, playing games is not just playing games. It's playing games in the company of peers who are also really enthusiastic and passionate about games and technology as well. I was going to ask on that topic, um, do you find yourselves breaking down sort of people's preconceptions about um, autism and computing and like not so much the people, the people participating in the lab, but the, their friends and their family and their caretakers? Yes, um, there is a bit of an assumption about the kind of geeky, autistic young person. Um, but the young people that we have are as different as any young people anywhere else. You know, the, the saying that if you know one person with autism, you know one one person with autism. Um, although these days you say autistic person, I, I keep getting the, the um, terminology, um, you know, uh, I have to keep my terminology updated here. Um, yeah, so that 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 is a really big factor. Um, and I think it's exposing or kind of re reducing the mystery of technology for some people around those young people. Um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have a stellar career in IT, because often people come to the lab or parents come to the lab with that kind of hope for their child that they're going to have this, this opportunity to have a career in IT. And they, they may never do that because, you know, IT's, IT careers are demanding, as you will know on the show, um, and they require all kinds of skills. And uh, sometimes the most important skills that you learn at a place like the lab are the skills that will help you make your way in life in other areas. Um, so there are some preconceptions that sometimes we have to kind of gently work on mm. with the people around young people. But the, the, the feedback we get from participants from their families is that participants have um, developed a much greater sense of self-confidence, their ability to connect with, with school is increased and their family relationships are, are improved as well. Oh, that's fantastic feedback. I wonder, do your attendees get to do any sorts of collaborative work um, other than with the mentors or do they tend we, to focus on individual work? That's, that's something that we've actually been able to develop with the, uh, with the online sessions this year. Um, Zoom has come a long way. Um, the advent of breakout rooms in Zoom has been fantastic for the lab because we've been able to uh, divide a group into kids who want to be involved in a collaborative activity and kids who just want to play. In the past, uh, we've been involved with PAX, the International Games Expo, for a number of years. We usually present there or have a stand there. Uh, this year, participants actually created a couple of games that they actually presented live at PAX, which was fantastic. And they were just over the moon about being actually being able to make these games. And um, if you have a look on our website, you'll see the presentation, the video presentation that, that participants made, um, the games that they made to present at PAX. It was a, it was a fantastic experience. And the, the social experience differs from, you know, for everybody, even in the face-to-face -face labs. If you look around any one of those, you'll see, you know, a group of young people in a cluster in a corner somewhere around a table. And you might have one, one you know, young person sitting there with, with their screen kind of uh, against the wall you know, so no one else can see them. And it really depends on, on the person. And the idea is to create an environment where um, everyone is comfortable to be there uh, and be who they want to be and not be forced to do anything. 
we should just give our uh, give our website a plug if anyone's interested. Get in touch. Yeah, so the lab.org.au and um, you have paid mentoring, which is amazing. I imagine there's lots of demand for places in your lab. What's the what's the sort of lead time people can expect before getting involved? Well, we're always on the lookout for people. We've got new venues starting, obviously, um, you know, proximity. You don't want to travel, have to travel too far. We're reasonably diverse, but we're also always looking for online mentors as well. Um, yep. It's a it's a very special role and um, fantastic experience. Yeah. And what about for participants? It's similar. We've really. got labs opening up all the time, and we're always um, we're always keen to to get as many young people involved because it's a it's a really rewarding activity. And the whole idea about the lab is providing that opportunity to a group that has experienced um, disadvantage. We should also mention that each lab is run locally. So, although the Lab Network, which is the not-for-profit organisation that runs sort of the, the whole show, each lab is managed by a local person um, or, or organisation. So, they kind of pop up organically. So, another level of interest uh, is for people who might be interested in starting one in their area, you know, if they know a bunch of kids who might be keen on this kind of thing. Look, it's a great opportunity and it's a great community organisation. We've been speaking to Stefan Schutt and Alan Morgans from The Lab Network. Uh, do check out The Lab uh, at thelab.org.au. Thanks so much for speaking to us tonight, guys. Thanks very much. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. For the last little bit of bite into it with Laura, Dan and Vanessa, thanks for being with us. Uh, in very quick news... I thought there was something funny that came up in Wired around the game Among Us. If you're noticing a lot of people in your life playing a game that looks like little beans in astronaut suits stalking around a little a little world. Um, Dan, I don't know if you're playing this at all. I uh, played a little bit of it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. Although it's pretty cute. what this is talking about is also very frustrating. Hackers getting into it and uh, just how weak the game's code is for um, hackers to be able to exploit it. Exactly. It's worth, if you're playing that game, it's worth heading to Wired, reading the article about it and understanding a little bit why sometimes weird things seem to happen and it just happens too much. So you can always invite people you know personally to play with you a lot safer that way. <laughs> hey, in events this week, what's going on, Laura? So there's a conference called Technically Games, which is on November 21st. Um, it's a free ticket. It's up on Discord. So it's a remote conference. And yeah, if you are into technical, technical, um, the technical aspects of gaming, rather, got it out there. I, it looks like it's got a lot of really interesting speakers and talks, things like monitoring and debugging with Minecraft immediately caught my eye. Love it. <laughs> Well, hey, we've had an amazing uh, show tonight. We've been very happy to have our guests with us. We spoke to Nicola Nye from Fastmail and Stefan Schutt and Alan Morgans from thelab.org.au. Hey, thanks, Laura and Dan, for being with me in studio tonight, virtually. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.